From the southeastern corner of western North Carolina, this is Polklore. I'm your host, James Hernisham. Polk County has taken it on the chin this year when it comes to democracy. The state legislature, where the Republican Party enjoys a veto-proof majority thanks to the defection of a single wayward Democrat, seems to have targeted our 240 square miles of the state for a massive electoral makeover. Beginning next year, elections for seats on the Polk County Board of Education will be partisan affairs. Anyone who wants to run for one of the three seats up for grabs has to choose between publicly embracing one of the two main parties or fighting to get on the ballot as an unaffiliated candidate, which isn't all that easy to do. The state GOP encouraged Polk County to make this change ourselves a few years ago, but that went over like a lead balloon. It was rejected by the current school board, current and former superintendents of education, and our entire county commission, which is composed solely of Republicans, by the way. And it's not hard to see why. Look at a list of school districts in the state ranked by performance. The top districts are almost all nonpartisan. Across the country, more than 75% of school boards are nonpartisan, and some states even forbid partisan school board elections. But legislation converting Polk's school board to partisan status sailed through the House and the Senate anyway. Polk County also lost its off-year elections, which means that the municipal elections scheduled for this fall were put off until next year and every term of office at the local level will be four years long from now on. And the county got split in two as part of congressional redistricting. Come 2024, the Saluda and Cooper's Gap precincts will stay in NC-11, where Chuck Edwards will be running for re-election, possibly against Democratic State Representative Caleb Rudo, unless someone upsets either of them in the March primary. The rest of the county will be moved to NC-14, where State House Speaker Tim Moore wants to run against whoever the Democrats dare put up against him. Some of the folks in White Oak and Mill Springs areas will have to check out the Board of Elections website to find out which side of the dividing line they live on. Our State Representative Jake Johnson supported all of these changes, and over the next hour, I ask him why. I also ask him why he had funding for the Saluda Grade Rails to Trails project pulled off the budget negotiating table at the 11th hour, threatening the whole project, only to reverse course soon after. Does that sound a little confrontational? Maybe, but we're now officially into the campaign season, so the questions are only going to get tougher. Our representative had answers prepared for all of them, so I'll let you judge whether those answers are up to snuff. Jake and I talked in the conference room above the House of Flags Museum in Columbus on December 4th, which happened to be the opening day of candidate filing for election 2024. Jake Johnson, welcome back to Polklore. Absolutely, Jess. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, hopefully uh, we can do at least one more before uh, the election yeah. next year, or maybe even before the primary. Yes. Right? So we uh, will actually we'll go back into session uh, officially. I think the rough day we're looking at is late April. Um, so as we get in and start looking at what that agenda looks like, maybe what the field looks like, uh, we can do one early next year. I understand uh, that. Because of the way in which uh, the districts are drawn in this in this state, um, and we can talk about that a little bit of this later. But uh, what happens in the primary is actually 
pretty darn important because the outcome's kind of predetermined after that, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you, in mine, we, we got a kind of a raw deal last time. For anybody that remembers uh, when redistricting happened, we actually got drawn in with another incumbent at the time. So uh, I know a little something about having to go through primaries, and uh, that ended up being a, a very expensive race that, uh, you know, frankly, there was, I think, six in the House double bunked across the state. And when I say double bunked, I mean, Republican drawn in with Republican and they have to run against each other or or vice versa, Democrat drawn against Democrat. And uh, but I think there was six Republicans drawn in with each other across the state. Lucky me, I uh, got to be one of them. So uh, we went through a rough one last time and uh, hoping we can avoid that this time if all possible. Well, I certainly I'll be paying real close attention. Uh, you, you're you going to be filing for re-election right after this interview. Correct. As soon as we wrap up, we're uh, we're, we're about five minutes of board of election. So we'll be rolling right over there to, uh, to file again. 2024. Right. I'm going to be advising everybody who's listening to pay real close attention to who files um, because it, I think the primaries are where it all happens this year. Absolutely. There's a handful of swing districts across the state. I don't know the exact number. By that, you know, they could go either way in each year. Um, and really any seat could go anyway. But you got to, you know, th there's a handful that are going to be true swing districts across the state. Um, and, you know, those are going to be obviously more expensive weighted in the general. And then you're going to have a lot that are really heavy weighted toward the primaries. And, uh, you know, last time, uh, like I said, we, we got in kind of a rough situation last time. So trying to avoid it this time. All right. Well, enough about the future. Let's talk about what's been going on for the last year. And Polk County has had several things happen to it, uh, thanks to what your party has done in the Legislative Assembly uh, with regards to elections. And we can start off with what I think everyone in Polk County is most concerned about, and that is the introduction of partisan elections to the school board. Uh, it was a, the idea was floated a couple of years ago and swatted down without, you know, unambiguously, nobody around here wanted to see partisan school board elections introduced. Um, and yet we now have them. And I, I just want to go over a little bit of history because what happened was there was a bill way back in February and uh, that was just going to be Catawba County with Hickory and um, Newton Conover City School Board. So all in Catawba County, they were going to switch to partisan. And then a committee added uh, Pamlico County. And then a committee added Polk County and took out Pamlico County and added Buncombe County to keep them from being partisan. Okay, so... Given that uh, we couldn't find anybody in Polk County was pushing for this, why did we end up with Polk County on that bill? Well, I will honestly say in, in our feedback, it was about 50-50 is what we were hearing. It's about 50-50, um, and that's people calling in person, to everything. And really, I think the catalyst for and this was this initiative out of the Senate, um, but it, the catalyst that really got us talking about it was the voter drop-off um, and just how little participation there was in those elections. Um, and when we say drop-off, I mean from a, a, an election like mine where you've got uh, declared parties on either uh, to one where plus they're not running under a platform per se. The drop-off, I believe, was somewhere between 20 and 30 percent. And we heard a lot of good arguments both ways. Don't get me wrong. We heard, uh, you know, this we, we don't want this to become a partisan issue everything to people just aren't participating in these elections because they have no idea what the candidates stand for. Um, and we heard those arguments both ways for months. Um, and really, it didn't come down to, uh, you know, personnel. It came down to just the sheer numbers of people weren't participating in these elections. 
at the level they were in other elections. And, uh, you know, kind of the logic was it was probably they didn't understand what they stood for and what platforms they were running under. And I think in a politically charged uh, environment, people didn't want to vote for somebody that they didn't know any basis of what they stood for. Well, I can understand the argument of wanting to increase participation. This is obviously something America suffered with in the past, historically low compared to other Western nations. But let's look at the end result here. Um, the, Polk County schools are consistently rated among the best in the state. Niche.com, which is one of the popular rankings, had again put Polk County number two in the state. Uh, and, and a new um, report from a group called the North Carolina Forum for Education or something like that, I'll put it in the show notes, just ranked Polk County number one in addressing the needs, uh, especially of economically disadvantaged uh, students. Yeah. So, you know, we have been extraordinarily successful for a small rural county. So given the, our success in the past using a nonpartisan school board, the fact that the existing school board didn't want partisan elections, the administration, the staff, the all five county commissioners, all of whom are the same party as you, all opposed this. And I mean, it was floated and they talked about maybe a referendum, but it there was unanimous agreement at the public meetings. So I don't doubt that you heard some uh, dissent, but it really did seem like what you're doing is changing something that doesn't need fixing. Yeah, and again, this was this was something that we heard good arguments on both sides, and 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 it was this this was a really tough one because at the end of the day, um, it really just co did come down to the numbers and and getting that participation up. And people came to us and said, you know, we're we're being asked to vote for people. We have no idea where they stand on anything. There's not enough money to get the messaging out. Uh, well, okay, but yeah. That's in part why this podcast exists because no. I want to, I want to, you know, I do want to help people get the word out. Yes, but if you, we're a small county, it's not that hard to figure out what people are all about, right? I mean, how long does it take to find out whether where someone stands on some important issues like school vouchers or uh, how uh, challenges to books and libraries are are made? I mean, it, it's you don't have to spend a lot of time like I do conducting long interviews. So I'm I'm curious. Who you don't have to name names, but what what type of people were telling you that they're really concerned about low turnout? Uh, like I said, it was a Senate initiative. Um, that's something they'd been pushing for for a while. And at the end of the day, we did have a lot of people in the county. I mean, I know obviously they're not the ones probably coming on your show and talking to you, but we did have a large portion of the county uh, emailing, texting, and uh, frankly, when I was doing community events, coming up and saying. Other, other counties are doing this. We deserve to know where our uh, school board members stand uh, on certain issues. And they're hiding behind this nonpartisan thing, not telling where they stand. And I, you know, and I, and I know these, and I know these people personally. So, you know, I can call them and ask, but to the average citizen, they felt like we, you know, we're being not, we're being misled by not knowing where they align on certain things. Okay. Um, okay. Well, I mean, that was a, and that was a, we, we could argue about this all day and I'm going to waste up all the time, but uh, one more issue. What this means, the practical uh, downside of this is that if you're not a registered member of the Democrats or Republicans, you have to get like 650 people to, to sign a petition to get you on the ballot. That's not going to be easy for unaffiliated members of the school board or people who want to be members of the school board who are unaffiliated, who are tired of the polarized partisanship in this country because it's really crazy these days. What do you tell somebody who's unaffiliated who says, geez, you know, that's an awful lot of work. 
Um, it's, it's hard enough getting the word out there and what I stand for. Now you want me to find 650 people in Polk County to sign a petition to let me on the ballot? Well, that's, that's the way it's always been. I mean, it's always been really hard. I mean, we've had uh, independents run for county commissioner here many times. Um, and, and frankly, it's, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't think you have to be a, an extreme of either party. If you are, uh, you know, I, I think you just, it's just the political reality that, that to be competitive, you need to be uh, uh, aligned with one of those uh, political parties to be able to, and it's not to say it can't be done. I mean, I'm sure it has been done, but it does make it extremely difficult and those elections. So in other words, what you're advising is if you're unaffiliated, just swallow your little bit of your independence and, and join one of the parties because that's the way you get a, you you have a better chance of succeeding. I'm saying historically that's been that's been the way it's worked. Okay. Well let's go to uh issue number two. Um Polk County used to have elections in so called off election years, like odd numbered years, and we got that taken away from us this year. What was that all about? Uh, as far as the uh, the county commission races, yeah, municipal and county commission races. So, so that just come down to a sheer cost of administering elections. That if we could get those synced up onto the same number of years, and there was very little pushback on that. When you look at the sheer numbers of how expensive it is to administer elections, um, again, helps turnout. That 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 was a big push in a lot of these bills is to get turnout up. And I think that when you have those off number of years. Uh, a lot of people don't know they're going on. Um, the, a lot of times these are votes that are decided by um, the total vote turnout may only be in the double digits. Um, so you've got extremely low turnout. It's very hard for people to um, make people aware there's an election just from a, a cost standpoint. And then uh, the actual cost of administering the election itself through the Board of Elections. If we can get those all synced up, it makes a whole lot more sense. And then... Um, Polk always did it a little strange, even when I was on the county commission. Polk always did it very strange to where the high vote getter, actually the two high vote getters, get a four-year term. The the third person gets a two-year term. I don't know. I've, I've talked to a lot of people across the state to try to figure out, do other ones do it this way? It's, I don't, I, maybe one I've talked to across the state does it. So it was very rare. And it was confusing to a lot of the voters because there's a, we, ju we just voted on you last time, and it's a four-year term. Well, I didn't get the two I vote, so you have to vote on me again this time. Or I did, so I'm not up for re-election. Synchronizing that and making them all four-year terms uh, ma made made a lot of sense, just just for the public understanding of how elections work and making sure everyone was on the same page going forward. And again, I can't even think off the top of my head of another one that did it that way across the state. So are we heading now, everything's four-year terms? Yes, yes, this this. Um, in, in the county, that's headed to four-year terms as to where before, I believe it was the top two got a four-year bottom. Uh, you still won, but you only won a two-year term. So that was the way it was staggered. Now it'll be staggered by when you get that four-year term. That's the way other counties historically do it. But, you know, again, municipal elections, we didn't yeah. have any this year, even though, even though some terms were scheduled to be up, but they were yeah. just given another year in yes. office, basically. Yes. But you still have to run every two years. I still have to run every two years. And that uh, that is something that is, and you know, a lot of these races, uh, you, you you truly legislate for, and I know, I think we talked before about the long term or long session versus the short session. So in our long session, which we just came out of, you think we got out in November. Uh, so we legislated practically January through November, only having a few weeks off and all that. You get to November and you're like, Whew, okay, we're out of session. I got to file next month. And then you turn around and you file in December. And then oftentimes we'll have 
races that where early voting starts in February, mid-February. So you turn around and it is an absolute sprint to that primary. Then uh, once you once you get by that, if you've got a general, you got to campaign all summer and go through that. You win, you turn around, you go back into session. So it really is a, a, a never-ending cycle of getting through those sessions. Then you got a campaign year. Um, and it's it's it, it's it's challenging at times just because you're having to travel to Raleigh. Now, if you live 30 minutes from Raleigh, it may be a little different. Uh, but when you're having to get back to campaign events four and a half hours away, uh, that that you know logistically you got to plan well. Would you like to see state reps go for four-year terms? I think it would make a lot more sense. I mean, it, it you know it's never easy to to do that just because you're you're extending terms. But uh, is like this year when we we did OMC, you can't. You know, you don't want to cut a term short. So if you extend that term, that's just always hard to do. But uh, especially when you're extending it, you know, by by that. But we've got a situation now where these races have become so expensive. I mean, we've got seats in the House and Senate that are costing millions of dollars. Um, and I mean, that's for to reach in the House. You're reaching between 90 and 100,000 people in the Senate. I think it's 225, 225,000 people. So you've got these races that are so expensive. So you're having to raise so much money. And having to spend so much money in so many of these races, and then you're having to go back and legislate, and so it's it really is difficult on a two-year cycle. I think it would make a whole lot more sense if we were on a four-year. So you know, but maybe there needs to be a big public outcraft for that. I think that means a well, you know, push you, in the future. That brings up an interesting question because a lot of these changes, and we'll continue talking about them, uh, don't seem to be grassroots complaints uh, because people really aren't aware of what's involved in running an election or running for an office, right? So, I mean, it, this is, it seems to me this is a, a function of people at the top going, this is how we can better run our elections, right? This isn't groundswell people being fed up with too many elections. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I would say, you know, I, I don't know how many people out there actually know we run every two years, you know, because it all kind of blends together. And Congress does the same thing. I mean, you think how much money you spent in a competitive congressional election and that goes on every two years. And, uh, you know, the politicians always talk about having to hate raising money. Well, people also hate getting the mailers and everything that, that have to be sent out during these things and seeing the TV ads and all that. Um, especially if you're in one of those competitive seats, I mean, you're going to get inundated uh, with the with the political stuff, but you, but you got to do it if you're a candidate. You got to do it to get your message out. Well, it seems like there's almost like there's conflicting notions here. Well, on the one hand, you want to increase voter participation. On the other hand, you're saying, well, I mean, there's too many elections. <laughs> I, I mean, per percentage-wise, we want to increase it. Uh, the propensity of it, I think um, two years, you know, it's just, it, it becomes a logistic of being able to focus and being able to uh, actually legislate. I mean, because like I said, right now, uh, even during the short session, people will be running in, in elections. I think it's important for people to remember, you're not actually a full-time legislator. That is also... What, what's your salary, $14,000 a year? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, whatever they give you, that I don't even think covers a hotel. <laughs> but right. So you're a part-time legislator, and yet you, every two years, you've got a mount of camp. Well, again, just like Congress, which is, which is more full-time. And so we've got, uh, you know, really, it's... And again, it depends on where you live, too. If you know you live 30 minutes from the Capitol, it's a lot different than if you live four and a half hours. Or if you're my buddy Carl Gillespie out in the western part of the state, I want to say he's six and a half, seven hours away. Um, so you, you've got folks having to really commit a lot of time just being on the road. And frankly, doing what I do now, if it wasn't for the technology and being able to do some of it remotely online, 
I'm not sure I'd be able to be up there right now. I mean, 20 years ago, before we were able to do so many things remotely, you really had to be somebody that had the flexibility to do that. And, you know, someone working a normal nine to five, that's, that's really difficult. And especially again, if you're having to commute that far. So, uh, you know, just the logistics of it do present a lot of challenges. What do you think about the idea of paying? (laughs) This is self-interest. I mean, mean, really, if you don't pay legislators, part-time legislators enough money, you can only attract people who are more or less independent. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or are be able to do things remote, do them back in the district and, and then be able to go to Raleigh three days a week. And we, we've talked about putting together, um, uh, I know this has been floated in the past. I'm not sure where it landed. Uh, being able to float a, a commission to say, based on the hours work, based on this, based on the workload, you know, it really, it, 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 it it's never looks good for us to say, hey, pay us this much. But, uh, you know, I think there has been, even retired legislators are some of the biggest advocates for this. Um, I, there was a legislator in the western part of the state who recently just was a huge advocate for this. And we got to put together some kind of commission that says, based on the time spent there, based on the amount you have to travel, based on this, this is what it needs to be set at. So it's not us saying, hey, this is what it will be, but somebody putting together the actual metrics of, you know, based on how much time you're there, this this makes the most sense. All right. I'm glad you raised the notion of a commission because I got a, another idea for a commission that we should talk about, uh, drawing district boundaries. Let's talk specifically about congressional district boundaries because, but put it bluntly, we had a really good system up until a few months ago because uh, the, the, there was 14 congressional districts in North Carolina. And the last time, using the district boundaries that were drawn by the courts, seven lent Republican and seven were Democrat. And that accurately reflected the more or less 50-50 split in the popular vote in this state. For statewide offices, it's very, very close to 50-50. So we had a system. Again, it was working really well. But now... The new boundaries which your party has just drawn gives you a ten to three or eleven to t- you know eleven to three or ten to four advantage. Um, so there's two questions about that. One is, again, it wasn't broken. Why fix it? And two, why did Polk County have to get split in two? Well, and I would back up and say, any districts a court drawn that is broken because the Constitution is extremely clear and frankly. I'm not a lawyer, and I, I think I've disclosed that in every interview. I'm not a lawyer. I read the Constitution says the legislature shall draw the maps, and that is that has been interpreted, you know, way too many different ways. But it says what it says. So the fact that a court was even touching that map uh, was blatantly illegal to me. Uh, well, well, wait a minute, hold on, because uh, that theory, the independent state legislature theory, has been thrown out, okay, by every every superior court, um, and. But not our Supreme Court. Well, the, no, the new Supreme Court. <laughs> but the point Supreme. of what is it? But then the, the U.S. Supreme Court. And the uh, the only reason the court was drawing it was because the previous ones, which your party had drawn, had thrown out for being unconstitutional on the basis of discriminating against people based on their race, which is a far greater egregious, you know, uh, uh, violation of of basic uh, rights than which. And it's my understanding that no racial data was used in the in the last drawing. That that no racial data was used. And I, I don't remember what the court's actual ruling was. Um, I believe it was that uh, partisan data could be used, not racial data. Could be used. Right. That's what they concluded. And they, and they concluded that the previous uh, district boundaries were discriminatory to African-Americans. That was their finding. 
So that's why we ended up with a court drawing. And I don't think anyone can disagree that that had to happen, right? If, if the courts threw it out, you had to give it to the courts to, 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 to draw. No, absolutely not. So the way the Constitution reads, they cannot like our maps. They can't touch them. And that's, that's where this new Supreme Court came in and said, are you kidding me? Said you just blatantly violated the Constitution by uh, touching those maps. You can say you don't like them. And, and, and you know, every, every justice has their own opinion. That's why they're elected to. Uh, what they can't do is say, I don't like them, so I'm going to draw. Because then you're, you're blatantly in constitutional violation. Okay, well, obviously, hey, neither of us are lawyers. And, and, okay, but to but, lawyers, but ultimately, what the, the the boundaries that the court, sorry, the districts that the court drew, produced a, a a electoral distribution that was right in line with the way the people of North Carolina think about their politicians: 50-50, seven and seven. And now the new ones again are going to be very very skewed towards the Republican Party. And I know in counties like Polk, where most people who vote vote Republican, they're not going to get upset about that. But fundamentally, again, the question is, if the previous system produced a a very representative, and that's, so this, is, this is not a, an opinion, this is an objective statement, a very representative system that accurately reflected the politics of North Carolina, why would you need to redraw the boundaries? Well, what I would say is if you if you look at the maps of today that are drawn that um, split very little uh, voting precincts is is, is and, and that really the the I believe it's the Stevenson. I don't want to misquote this. The Stevenson ruling that says don't split um, where you don't have to pretty much. And it really just works out to a, a, a base on population. And sometimes you're going to have county split. I mean, that's just that's just the reality of it, that it's going to be split. And Frankly, I'm not on redistricting, and I so I don't get all the, the briefs on, on what the rules are. Um, and and I asked not to be on redistricting. <laughs> they said, "Which committees do you want?" I said, "I can tell you which ones I don't want to be." You know? yeah, I would agree that would be a thankless committee and assignment. I do not want to be on redistricting because I said it, it's there's there's so many court cases you have to comply with. Um, frankly, it, it it's, it's extremely it would be extremely frustrating to me just to be on that committee because there's just so much you have to comply with. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, okay, if you comply with one i mean how are you how are you complying with both because that some in my head are contradictory so what what i'm looking at is you know one the old districts and i say old i mean early 2000s that that republicans won under did not pass the eye test i would i would challenge anyone to go back and look at the maps of the early 2000s and then look at the maps that we drew and just based on that which passes the eye test of of actually drawing districts that make sense. Com you know, we use the term communities of interest. Uh, we use the terms um, not splitting. The, there's an acronym for it, but it's pretty much uh, 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 the 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 voting. Uh, I can't remember the acronym, but it, it's the voting areas. There, there's so many criteria you have to do. Go back and look at one from the early 2000s. Go back and look at the ones that we most recently drew. And I think that will put a lot in perspective. Yeah, but I'm just trying to compare the ones in the last election, which again, the, the, the courts had a master draw up, and the ones that you just enacted. And the bottom line is, uh, Republican Party in the United States is going to pick up three or four seats due to that. Not due, not due to any changes in the way North Carolinians are voting, but simply because of the way you drew the election boundaries. Now, isn't there something fundamentally wrong with that? I think these maps, we did more to comply, I think, than I, I'm not going to say any legislature before us because I, I wasn't there. But 
since I've been there, these maps were complied more than any I've seen. And frankly, I'm not saying, you know, they they did it so, you know, we can do it. But historically, the party in power has drawn the maps. And that's the way the Constitution was set up. Well, that brings me up to the point I wanted yeah. to bring up. Commissions. And I think 11 states in this, in this nation, independent electoral commissions draw up the boundaries specifically because too many Democrat parties and too many Republican parties have been gerrymandering way out of control. And uh, in New York, the Democrats drew districts that heavily favored them. And that's the courts are having serious problems with that. And in North Carolina, the Republicans are drawing gerrymandered districts that give them an unfair advantage. So what do you think the idea of an independent commission taking over the responsibility for that? Well, historically, whenever, and I will say this, when Republicans came in, came into power, it was under Democrat maps that were drawn. So I think a lot of times people put way too much focus on the map and lose sight of in a lot of these areas, it has to do with you've got a lot of people moving to the urban areas that are um, historically more Democrat. You have a lot of people moving to the rural areas that are historically more Republican. And we have 80, you have 80, I believe it's 80 or maybe more than that now, uh, Republican or uh, rural counties in the state that tend to go more Republican. And, you know, if you look at the counties that Roy Cooper won in his first election, Versus this last election, I mean, you're going, I think he won 60-something counties in the state, I believe, in the first time he ran for attorney general, versus I think we're getting down in the maybe low teens now. So you're you're really looking, it's, it's, it's a population shift. So when you're looking at the criteria of how you draw maps, and you're looking at if you can't, if you're not supposed to split those counties, especially, you know, you're looking at a legislative district, it's only 100,000 people or something like that. Mine's a little bit of an anomaly because I live in Polk County, which is only 20,000 people. Um, so I have to go get population in other places. But when you're looking at that criteria, it has a lot to do with where people are moving and where those population centers are. And then you compare that with the criteria you have to use. Uh, I mean, that that's what gives you a lot of that dynamic. Yeah, but that's why we do, uh, we redraw the boundaries every 10 years based on the census results, because those shifts do happen. And again, my, my point is, wouldn't it be better uh, to ensure that um, because one day the Republicans will lose power in North Carolina, Democrats will take over. I mean, it'll happen eventually, even with the gerrymandered districts. So wouldn't you be more comfortable knowing that independent, uh, nonpartisan commission is going to produce boundaries every 10 years based on the population shifts that make sense? I know historically every party that's lost an election talks about the commission, and then every time it shifts back, it it doesn't. And, and that's just the the ebb and flow of time and you know i think frankly sometimes and i think this was said on the house floor so I'll, I'll say it here instead of complaining about the districts it may make more sense to look at the platform and how you've outran the headlights with some of your voters and if you're getting too extreme for the districts you represent your voters will check you and you will you you will turn it over to the other side well, that's what happened in the early teens. i could use that same argument back against you though saying that there would be no reason to uh, heavily skew the uh, district boundaries in favor of one party if the party platforms were in sync with what the public wanted. It, it's clear, it, I mean, it's clear, for instance, abortion, which I know is an important issue for you, um, the vast majority of Americans support Roe v. Wade. Vast majority, we're talking 70 to 80% want some form of abortion legalized, not the, all the way to birth, but you know, Roe v. Wade was a compromise that the most Americans could get, get behind. 
And yet, um, the Republican Party in many places like Ohio is even refusing to listen to its own voters on a referendum that said, hey, we want some form of legalized abortion. And, you know, in North Carolina, I think we, we, we tried to do a good job of hearing from all the groups. And, you know, we, 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 the bill I think we passed was, I, I, I said the word common sense. I think this was something that didn't, didn't outlaw everything, uh, you know, from conception, but also, you know, we had some people pushing for, uh, you know, voting against the born alive bill, which I thought was, you know, that's, that's if a child's already born, you know, survives the abortion, survives that. Well, yeah, we, yeah, we would take too long to get into the weeds. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm all sorry I brought it up. But but uh, but you, we're talking about the legislation that is cuts off at 12 weeks, right? And and which is half the length of Roe v. Wade. So it kind of sounds like a compromise between Roe v. Wade and a pure pro-life. Yeah, and North Carolina was, um, was at 20 weeks, um, but prior and so this this just peeled off eight weeks, which I think will uh, do a lot of good and and saving babies within that eight weeks. But when you when you look at it was what we could get passed. And so, you know, I think it didn't do any good to, to put a bill out there uh, that, you know, frankly, we weren't even going to be able to get on the floor. So, you know, even even within your own caucus, sometimes, I mean, even we represent a lot of districts across the state, even within our own caucus, when you've got 72 people there. Um, so being able to get some consensus and, you know, uh, you know, when we have those discussions, we, we, you know, those are, those are oftentimes very uh, passionate discussions, uh, even within your own party uh, about where that is. And, you know, we, we got to a point where that was, that was a bill we were going to be able to pass. So there was a lot of consensus building there and it was, um, you know, not what a lot of people were very frustrated. They wanted something more strict, maybe a heartbeat bill. Um, some wanted to leave it where it was and we settled on 12. Okay. Well, you know, I can respect that level of compromise and give and take because not everyone agrees. But when it comes to, you know, fundamentals of democracy, and, and again, electoral boundaries are kind of like that, it doesn't seem like there was a, an attempt to find a reasonable middle ground that a lot of Democrats could live with. I mean, 10-4 or 11-3 is going to be, is the new split. And with like one district kind of uncertain, uh, in the end result for Polk County was, was Saluda and White and uh, Cooper's Gap get put into District 11 and everybody else gets put in District 14. And I know some counties got to get split because before there were some and there still are other counties that are split. But I mean, we're such a small county. It, it, it really seems to me like we were sacrificed for no good reason because we're so small. There probably wasn't. There probably was a, a boundary you could have drawn that kept Polk County whole. Well, and frankly, I just making requests to D.C., um, I see a lot of benefits in being split, and some people don't see it this way. Um, I can tell you from counties I've represented that are split, um, see a lot of benefit from it because you've got two votes instead of one for anything you're advocating for. And I'll give you another example that if um, uh, Rutherford County split now in the state house district, when you've got myself and another member advocating for that, if we've got a member project or something that we're advocating for, and that's mostly capital projects, um, uh, the dam or something like that. If we're advocating for something like that, having two people you can call and you've almost got an extra built-in vote and an, an extra built-in person advocating for this stuff. Um, and then you look at the historical context of it. And I'm, and, and, and frankly, this was, there was a couple different versions of the map. One poke was split, one wasn't. Um, and you know, for me, you're looking at communities of interest and you look at, uh, Saluda. Saluda has historically been very tied in with Henderson County. 
uh, just because, I mean, you've got salute addresses that are actually Henderson, part of Henderson sure. County. I mean, it's where I do my shopping. Yeah, and yeah. so you've got, and you've got uh, you know, 176 that ties in uh, Flat Rock up there. And you've got a lot of, you've got a lot of infrastructure things, whether it be, uh, you know, I, I know some of the internet providers kind of tie in on that backside and uh, water and things like that. So you've got, you've actually got a decent case to make that for communities of interest. And I believe Saluda historically was part of Henderson County way back in the day. Um, or was to, or part of it was tied into Henderson County. So you've got that argument, but really the thing that why, I'll, I'll put it this way, why I didn't fight it too bad was it's always worked out really well in my situations where you've got two advocates instead of one that uh, and they may sit on different committees. So if I've got a bill that would benefit Polk County, whether it be, uh, I don't know, emergency funding or something, let's say there's a flood or something like that, where I need something pushed through for Polk County, uh, that needs to go through a certain committee or maybe a case workload or things like that. Uh, if I can call Chuck Edwards or whoever wins this 14th district, which I'm very familiar with all the candidates running there uh, and feel very, very, very good about my ability to get, get in touch with them. And Chuck's been great in the 14th or the, um, the 11th being able to, yeah, all the numbers shift the 11th being able to get in touch with him. So for me looking at it, uh, just seeing what I've seen at the state level where I've had split counties, whether it be McDowell, Henderson, Rutherford, being able to call that other representative and say, hey, I'm putting the request in, but when it comes down to vetting these through appropriations, if you could help advocate for that, and there's two of us advocating for it, it increases our odds of being able to get that pushed through. Well, that's a really logical argument. However, uh, when you're talking about a small county like ours and, and a relatively low population, say, you know, my part, Saluda, and the folks up in northern part, it's not a lot of us. Isn't it kind of just as easy to ignore our interests because, well, you got a good state representative. That's, that's the thing. You know, you, you got somebody who can call these guys and, and get it pushed through. And, and, and I, I just say that to say, in my experience, the, the split county is not, not a bad thing at all. Um, and, and I'll use Rutherford County as an example. Uh, there was a lot of, I mean, it's a tier one county. It's my first time having, uh, having represented Rutherford County. And when I really got to diving in with the local officials, um, there was truly a lot of, a lot of capital need. I mean, they got a jail. We, we got a new jail here uh, a few years ago and it's, it's, it's been one, wonderful having it here. Um, and, and just for officer safety, prisoner safety, everything else, but th they're going to need one down there. We got them some, some good funding for that. Just a lot of big capital projects down there that needed to be done. I'm not sure those could have been done without having multiple people advocating for it. If I had to put in that kind of request just by myself, the, the that amount of money, I am very skeptical. I'm very skeptical it would have got approved. But when you had two people saying, hey, you know, we all have kind of our caps that we can put in for and we get allotted, that they can say, hey, you know, I'll use some of my cap space to help you out with this. That That is huge. So, you know, it, it probably works a little bit different in D.C., but in my experience, having two people advocate for you, there's a lot of advantages to it. Okay. I, and that brings up something I forgot to talk about <laughs> when, when we were talking about nonpartisan school boards, because uh, I believe, you know, I think I emailed you when this was going on. And your response was that uh, you weren't pushing for the nonpartisan, for the partisan school boards, but you were willing to accept it because you got to make deals in, in state house. And you didn't mention what was it, what were you hoping to get in return? Specifically, what kind of things are you working on through committees that, that you can get in return for your support for some things which may not go down well in your own hometown? Well, and here, here's the other part of it. You've got rules committee on both sides. So so I'll, I'll, I'll try to 
paint this kind of abstract. You've got a rules committee on both sides, and we usually try to trade off bills. Uh, that if, if I've got something over there, you got something, and it may not be like, you know, that one for that one or something like that, but we generally try to move those bills. And, and frankly, it, it came down to, is this the hill, you know, we want to die on when we've got half our account? And, I, and I'm, I know you don't believe me, but we did have a lot of people advocating for this. And frankly, the, the numbers are what sold it for me at the end of the day when I'm going to it and I'm going, okay, we have this voter drop off. It's, it's really at no point during that negotiation was it, we, oh, we want to get rid of so it's, that was never the, that was never the point that was used when the Senate was negotiating for it. Uh, and they had a very logical thought out argument. And when they come and presented that, uh, you know, I'm looking at it going, okay, if, if I could get some bills moved and, and it wasn't like that one for that one, it was just, if I could get some of my stuff moved, this, this does make sense. I've got a lot of people promoting for it. Uh, is that really where we want to shut the whole process down over this? And yeah, but, but yeah, it wasn't about shutting the whole process down. This was a bill that was started off in Catawba County and Polk was added to it, you know, a month later. Couldn't you have just said, hey, you know, we just had a big debate in Polk County because we had less than two years before and it was shut down here. Couldn't you have just said, let's, let's maybe put Polk County uh, further down the list. Let's just, you know, why add Polk County? I mean, and especially since Buncombe County was added to the list, but in the opposite way, to make sure that partisan elections couldn't go in. And let's face it, we both know why that's true. That's the Democrats control but Buncombe <laughs> County, okay? Yeah. So it was quite clear that what you what uh, the, the leaders in Raleigh were doing was making counties where Republicans are more likely to win, uh, you know, give them partisan school boards. And places where Democrats were likely to win, make sure they couldn't have partisan school boards. I mean, there, there's no other way to interpret that. Well, and that was never the way it was sold. I mean, that was that was never the way it was presented to us. It was simply we've got people coming to us saying they don't know what these people stand for, and we we won't. So, and it was the same. I mean, I don't know if you remember the judges uh, when when some of the judges were made to partisan uh, across the state. It was the same exact uh, argument that was used. Uh, People are not voting in these elections because they have no idea what these judges stand for and they don't want to vote the wrong way and then, uh, you know, find out later that they voted for somebody who didn't believe the way they did. Uh, it was it was really the same argument that was used, not we want to get this person in over that person. It was these people have no idea, uh, people contacting us. And, it, and I, I see it at the polls. Uh, I saw it at the polls because when I'm standing out there, you know, oftentimes when it's nonpartisan, you know, those are ones that are kind of left off the voter guides that people are handing out. I mean, you've been to the polls. You've, people try to hand you everything. Uh, and, and there's a left off there. And they're like, hey, how do we vote on these? Um, how, how, you know, are they, are they, they, and they have no point of reference. And I think it was the same argument that was used. And that's the biggest parallel I can draw was when this was implemented for the judges, same logic that was implemented for the school board was that some basic understanding of where they stand Okay, but just one, and I won't belabor the play, but one last time, then why make Buncombe County forbid them from having partisan elections? I don't know. It was, I believe it was a local bill, and I'm not sure if there was a local delegation issue. I, I really don't know, because it, it, local bills are not like statewide bills. It banks a lot more on the, the local delegation, so I, I, I can't speak for it. It just... You know, it's just a little bit of a conflict there. Uh, I was going to say, I, I, I don't even remember, I don't know if there was any conversations uh with the Buckham delegation, I, I don't remember. All right. Well, I guess we, we've beaten that horse for a little bit. Um, let's talk about the other big thing that's going on in Polk County, and that's the Rails to Trails project, which is almost certainly going to happen, right? We'll see. <laughs> uh, let me apply. Okay. But, uh, because, because 
you know, South Carolina, uh, like a year ago, committed like $15 million yeah. to the project. And um, I think a similar amount of money is included in this year's budget for North Carolina. It is. Okay. But um, that wasn't always certain, was it? I mean, didn't you kind of push back a little bit? Oh, and, I, and I'm happy to give you the whole rundown. And frankly, the room we're sitting in, I know the viewers can't see it, or the listeners can't see it, but the room we're sitting in right now is kind of where we 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 had to talk about things. Um, so, so, so what happened was those are generally put in as member requests uh, and generally put in and, you know, they're vetted through. And that way we can, uh, we, we, can, we can more or less see those plans compared to other projects being requested in the county and kind of vet those out on priority. Uh, this was, I'm not going to say snuck in, but, but, but it, was, it was tried to being put in the budget a different way behind, behind some of the appropriators' backs. And it was really just a lack of communication, I think, between some of the groups involved and what their people in Raleigh were trying to do. And uh, it, and frankly, I'll tell you, the, the one who was, who was a great advocate for both sides, because he's been on both sides of the fence, Chuck McGrady. He's, he's, I've worked with him on a ton of projects. He sees it from both sides, and he certainly understood uh, uh, the method had a lot to be desired for, for how it was done. And so, you know, when I called him and said, listen, this is not the way we operate up here. We're not going to try to do things behind people's backs. We're going to vet it on, we're going to vet this thing based on what it can bring to the region um, and not try to slide it in other avenues. And so when we sat down and had that conversation, uh, that that's when we got things back on back on the rails, for, for, for lack of better words, and, and we were able to get that put in. The, the one thing that, that was um, had to be in there for me was a feasibility study to see if there was um, what the economic benefit would be and I, the coffee cup I got right now is the, the Smoky Mountain Railroad up there. I was I I, I, wanted, I wanted to go do it in person and say, you know, what what is the demand? What are the logistics of this? And just kind of fill it out. It, it, what what is the feasibility of it? And we put some money in there for a feasibility study on that. So for the money to be released, that feasibility study has to be done first. Now, just the eye test of of what I know and and what I've seen. The bottom part is in the bottom part of the rails. And when I say bottom half i mean saluda to try on are in are in rough shape there's a lot of areas washed out um just looking at it and i'm not an engineer or a large so uh, it looks like it would be a lot more expensive to, to rehab that part of the track from saluda to hendersonville uh where it ties into watco and then goes into downtown hendersonville looks way more feasible for that now that's without having done any feasibility study yet um that's just having talked to people who know more about railroads than I do. They said it's way more feasible to potentially have a passenger car going up the grade than going down the grade just because of the amount of repairs and the topography and things like that. Oh, wait, passenger car? Yes, yes. Okay, so, but, but but the the, car, the, the, the Rails to Trails project is primarily about creating bicycle and walking paths. Correct, yes. And, um, and, and that was what the media covered. That was not necessarily the conversations that were, were going on during that whole time. And we haven't ruled out those coexisting together. So there's some scenarios where you have a railroad and a bike trail. Um, and there's, and we, we've got a couple of examples across the state where those exist. But just from a feasibility point of view, I can see just my vision, Saluda being the hub to where going down the mountain, you have a bike trail, walking path and everything else. Going from Saluda to Hendersonville, you have a passenger car that really fits more of kind of the historical railroad town Saluda characteristic. And you've got the best of both worlds with Saluda kind of being the hub for both. And uh, then you got to figure out parking and everything else, which which we'll get to that when it comes. But 
that's kind of the overall vision of what this feasibility study is looking to figure out. Well, that's certainly not the vision that was originally described. I mean, I, I did an episode of this a year ago. Uh, when we were talking to one of the uh, one of the organizers at, with Conserving Carolina, and they jumped the gun a little bit. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Uh, I mean, they're the ones that came up with the idea. Well, we've been talking about a passenger car for years, ever since the old railroad shut down. I, in fact, <laughs> when I moved here 20 years ago, I was very interested in the notion of, of resurrecting passenger service. But the truth is, Norfolk Southern abandoned the rail long time before they were legally allowed to. They stopped. Well, that's right. They stopped maintaining the rail, even though that was part of the, the condition of them getting the right of way. And it's no longer possible. But most most of the the, the the route just is way beyond the point of resurrecting with a reasonable sum of money, right? Now you say saluted a tuxedo. Maybe we could yes. do that. Th that's more the route we're. Okay, so you are willing to say. Hey, let's take this money out of the budget if we don't include uh, the possibility of of a, of a car surface. Is that was that? Oh, no, no, it was just a feasibility study. So, so, so yes, that was that was a huge priority for me. Yes, absolutely. That was. I mean, it was a very easy ask. I mean, that was that was one of those things that it could have been solved with a phone call type of thing. And um, we were just wanting to get it back in the member project realm as opposed to handing it to a department and saying y'all are control of this now. And so, what we wanted to do was make sure that. Locals had input on it. Um, it was not sent to a department and saying, this is what we're doing. The money's already there. We have no more control over it. What we wanted was a local steering committee made up of local elected officials, um, folks that have expertise in all these different realms we're talking about. Uh, that, that, was, that was a lot of the, the issue, was there was going to be no oversight locally. Yeah, but we came within like a day uh, right, it was very close to the deadline for for getting those those member appropriations in, where you basically had it pulled until some issues were worked out to your satisfaction. Um, that's a big gamble, isn't it? Because even if you didn't get the passenger rail uh, concept feasibility study included, this is a lot of money that can benefit Polk County. Oh, absolutely, and and you got to look at. Um, yeah, we, we, we wanted this money here. I mean, that was that was absolutely, but we wanted the locals to have control of it. We wanted a local, we wanted input on this thing. We didn't want it to get shipped off to some C4 that was going to run away with it. We wanted uh, our local officials and our local delegation to have some input on this, and we were scared the way it was put in there. Uh, I said, I'd, I'd, rather, I'd rather do this thing a little slower and right as opposed to do it fast and wrong. And that was that was kind of our stipulation from the beginning. And, and putting a feasibility study in should not have been a breaking point for anyone. Well, feasibility say specifically about passenger service because, uh, I mean, a feasibility study for the whole thing was uh, was on the books right from day one. Yeah. I mean, obviously, obviously, obviously I mean, it's, it's happening right now. Yeah, I believe that was, uh, was it 200,000 in 2019 maybe? Yeah, I, I, I mean, the, the first thing that happened once it was clear this is going to hold is they started on the feasibility study, which is going to be concluded in a few months. Uh, and uh, again, when, when I when I did an episode on this, it was clear that was the first step. Um, I guess it just surprised me because I don't think anybody that I know was talking about resurrecting rail service in any form. The whole the plan was to convert this to rails to trails because the rail, most of the rail was beyond repair. If you knew how many angry calls I got about putting a trail in over there, if you knew how many just really upset people call me about that, and, and, and when I say, listen, 
you know, I'm I'm not I'm not willing I'm not going to be at a, a extreme on either side. I'm willing to hear everybody and, and and look at what gives us the best economic return, what fits the uh, characteristics of the areas that it's going through in the county. I want to look at all these factors, and I want locals to have input on it. Uh, so when we started having those conversations, all this started to take form of okay, there, there's probably a compromise in here where we could probably do both. Now, if you didn't want the rail trails, and it's it's on the part, I mean, there's still going to be people not happy. Uh, I mean, there's always going to be people not happy. I mean, I tell you, whenever these projects go in, we get a lot of mad phone calls. We do not want people going through our backyard. There's going to be a, I, I anticipate there'll be a lot of legal disputes on uh, uh, deeds dating back early 1900s, which I mean, still are legally enforceable. I mean, just because they're old doesn't mean they're not. Well, legal. there's no uh, doubt that the first benefit beneficiaries of the Rails to Trails program are lawyers. <laughs> yeah, yes. Okay. So we can agree on that. That uh, yes, there there's going to be based on conversations I've had, I would expect uh, a lot of property rights uh, lawsuits, and you know that's not unusual for one of these projects. Uh, again, just because the deed's old doesn't mean it's not enforceable. So you're going to see a lot of those. Probably going to have to be, uh, you know, I'm again not a lawyer, but you know I don't know how that ends up getting settled in court when when a deed says you know there's a sketch saying it goes to the middle of the line if it ever is not a railroad, and then. You've got one that says it goes here and you're infringing 10 feet on here. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's going to be some disputes. And there are people who are adamantly against any kind of, of trail going behind their house that touches their property. And frankly, a lot of those folks, I don't blame them. Like, I wouldn't want people riding through my backyard either. Uh, so I, I don't really blame a lot of the folks that are upset about that. What we were trying to do is work out some kind of compromise where we can um, potentially work out both. I, I guess what, what surprised me is because I, I have a fairly good grasp of of the timeline here it would you came down to the wire and you basically said hey i'm worried about this and then some folks talked to you and you came to an agreement okay right at the last minute basically okay and i just thought that was an odd thing to do given given the um the amount of money at stake well i was born and raised in saluda it is it is uh, we go back there generations my great 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 however many back grandfathers started coon dog day uh we've, we've been there forever and you know when i have members of my whole family calling me going this thing's about to get out of hand and and and, and i can tell you it's it's kind of split um you know even my friends and family are kind of split on it and so you know I, I i hear it all the time but i really think we've got a really good possibility of being able to have the best of both worlds um and I was willing to say, we're going to pump the brakes on this thing and we're going to do it the right way the first time instead of letting it get out of control and, you know, people feel like their voices aren't being heard in this. Because um, I, I, I can tell you, it was it, a lot of the people against it were people with Polk County addresses. A lot of the people calling me for it, uh, they, they don't live anywhere around here. Well, I, I guess my take was the exact opposite. I mean, I went to a lot of the meetings. Oh, and my I talked to a lot of the people. <laughs> I mean, at the, when you first hear about it, of course, people are like, well, you know, what's, what does that mean for me and my property that abuts the right of way? But, you know, I've been to a lot of these these public sessions and uh, the inclusivity, the willing to listen rather. I mean, some of these meetings weren't people saying, here's what's going to happen. It was tell us what you are concerned about so we can work that into our plans. I've been very impressed at how inclusive and open the, the organizers Yes, and I've, I've actually attended those meetings as well, and I've went and kind of said my vision for, for whatever it's worth. What I really didn't appreciate, and I think we're past that now, we've, we've had this conversation with those folks, um, use, using the media to try to guide uh, 
the narrative uh, in in conversations with stakeholders. That that really bothered me. Putting out headlines saying this thing's been funded when it had not, um, and saying, okay, one, yes, we're pretty confident we can get this in here and get what everybody wants, but you're not going to go blatantly mislead folks in the media into thinking this thing's already funded and a done deal. Because I had people calling me absolutely furious, saying you would rep- you said you would represent us and try to keep this. Uh, you know, a saluted characteristic, try to, you know, do something to promote the railroad. And now you're just folding. It. I said, we haven't even had the meeting yet. I said, I have no idea why they put that press release out. Well, what, what media are we talking about? We don't really have uh, much of media, do we? I think one was in the Blue Ridge Times, one was WLOS, one was, um, uh, I think the Bulletin did a really good job of, of covering everything to my knowledge. But there were some of those that people were seeing, uh, and on the not just Polk, but on the Henderson County side too. Um, and we're, we're, we're living. And I said, this is, this is just falsely being reported. I said, this is, these conversations haven't even took place yet, much less are a done deal. I said, we're still kind of working on what this project is going to look like. And, you know, they're reporting that it is already, it's a done deal done. And I think that was intentionally done. So we had a conversation with, with some of these groups and, you know, they've, we, we we've sorted it out since then, but that just kind of got us off on the wrong foot. Um, saying, you know, trying to shove it down people's throats. Maybe this is an argument that we need better media. That's a great. Uh, I mean, you won't be. I, you know, I'm not going to defend the media, media in general. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's just why kind of why I do the podcast. But um, I paid as much attention as I could to what little media coverage there were, and it basically boiled down to reprinting a press release from Conserving Carolina that didn't say everything's decided. All it said was, "Well, Polk County Community Foundation has given us a quarter of a million dollars to get things rolling." Uh, and they pointed out that South Carolina has already committed $15 million, but there's still tons of work to be done. I don't know. I guess if for me, because I was reading carefully, I don't think I got the wrong impression the, the, from the, the headlines. I'll put, maybe, maybe we'll back it up and say the headlines uh, led to some very angry phone calls. To me. Well, maybe people should read past the headlines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, when, when it says state funds, uh, rail project, uh, you know, things like that, I, I get angry. I'm like, South Carolina funded theirs. We're considering funding it, but it's going to have a feasibility study about a potential pastor car for half of it, potential this. Uh, maybe they can coexist side by side if there's enough room. I said, all these are possibilities. We're not ruling anything out until we get these studies back. Then, you know, they were like, okay, that makes sense. All right. Well, yeah. you and I could agree on the need for better media. Better coverage, better. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, look, that's all the questions I had for you. Tell me what you're working on that people might not know about well i tell you we uh we we're we chair an oversight committee and frankly it's it's the most in my opinion the most like a congressional committee that we have in the state of north carolina and you know a lot of it is complaint driven people bring things to us or the auditor brings something out uh and a lot of us are just issues that we're passionate about and want to want to take a deeper dive into and what reason it's fascinating to me is we meet during the interim so we'll i'll actually be up there next week um, talking to the uh, Department of Insurance. We were there a couple weeks ago talking to the auditor um, about all the money spent during COVID and where it went. I mean, what, what, they were talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, when I'm talking to business owners, when I'm talking to people, you know, they're like, you know, what happened to all that money? <laughs> and, and I'm like, okay, people deserve to know that. So we brought Employment of Security and the auditor in who were, were very willing to come talk about it. And uh, we're having these conversations um, it's very enlightening. Uh, there, there were, I want to say, a few hundred million dollars of uh, improper payments made that, uh, and, and that's hundreds of millions that, that were made that now people are getting bills in the mail saying you owe us this much money. We accidentally paid you, 
And if you were going on unemployment and you're still maybe in a recovery process, it's very hard to come up with a few thousand dollars that you didn't have to begin with. So, you know, trying to get the word out on how people can correctly pay this back without getting the penalties and the fines and things, making sure that if this ever happens again, hopefully it doesn't, but if a scenario like this ever happens again, that we don't repeat the same mistakes. And these are these are often, I mean, obviously the auditors, he's Democrat, DES is uh, a, a Democrat agency, and we're trying to work with them. It's not, a, you know, I gotcha. It's, it's, okay, all this money went missing. We can't recover it. How do we prevent this from happening in the future? What better ways? Anybody that tried to call in and get unemployment, you you didn't have an easy time doing it. They acknowledged that. They said, you know, the, the, the customer service had a lot to be desired, which I think everyone who interacted with it would agree with. How do we fix these things? And then how do we be more accountable for taxpayer dollars? And how do we track that money down and figure out where it went? Talking about loss of learning in schools. Uh, the auditor did a great uh, thing, pretty much saying we, we don't know how to gauge how much learning loss was really lost in schools and how many days people were missing. It, there was no system in place to track it. Um, that, that's, that's frustrating when, when, when we're sitting up there asking these questions and there's, and there's so many question marks still out there. Uh, and then we've, we've got an, another issue kind of pending with the SBI, probably the one that made the most headlines in Raleigh and Charlotte. It was covered out here a little bit, which is, you know, it, 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 but it affects the whole state. Um, was there was a kind of a, we'll call it a whistleblower instance where the current SBI director, State Bureau of Investigations, State Bureau of Investigations correct, it's the FBI for the state pretty much. They, they oversee the big capital crimes, the, um, you know, big high important, uh, high level crimes. Uh, there was some allegations that uh, the governor's staff was actually trying to threaten him into resigning, which is, we do not need either side, Democrat or Republican, you do not need political people influencing the highest uh, level of law enforcement agency. And, you know, there was there was emails directly contradicting uh, testimony and uh, of, the, of the governor's folks and people like that. So that's kind of ongoing. And the reason that's important is he uh, really the term is up uh, for the SBI director and there should be a new one appointed. The problem is we've got an ongoing investigation into a, 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 an administration that was trying to influence and threaten the other one into resigning. And so it, it's making it really hard for us to do that appointment with any confidence right now. Uh, and so we're we're kind of in a holdover period there to where he's still serving as SBI director until we can get everything straightened out. But when you're dealing with document requests, you're dealing with scheduling uh, testimony and things like that, it takes, it takes a really long time. So that's what I cheer in Raleigh. So when people ask, why are you still having to go back and forth? Is it, well, a lot of my work is actually during the interim when everybody else is back in their districts. We're having to go up there and do those types of things. And um, it's just a lot of coordinating on the back end. It's a lot of, you know, the, the but not necessarily subpoena, but we do have the authority to issue a subpoena if we need to. And that, you know, if it was appealed, it would go to a court. But we, we've, we've actually, that, that's been the most intriguing committee I've been on so far in Raleigh. It reminds me of an, another issue. Uh, I did an episode, you might have heard it uh, a few months ago, about the Talia Patoya uh, case, you know, and, and, uh, and we don't have time to go into all the details, but, you know, a, a young man murdered a young woman, and um, Very whether, we, whether it was intentional or unintentional is, is what the court is going to decide. Um, one of the reasons this case is dragging on and on and on is because the autopsy is, like, at the bottom of the priority list. Okay, North Carolina's got a lot of money. We've got budget surplus. There's 
plenty of money to roll around. Why is the the state um, medical examiner's office overbooked? Yes, and and she was a very close family friend, and we were pay- we were obviously probably tuned more into this and probably opened our eyes to more of that backlog. I mean, uh, frankly, it just hadn't been on. I, I don't think anyone around here's radar until that till that happened. And um, and I believe I want to say is it Winston Salem that is the closest yeah. uh, examiner we have. So I'm I'm sitting here thinking, go if we're in Polk County, and the closest one we have is Winston Salem. How much is being funneled through this one? I mean, you think a what two and a half hour radius, three hour radius to be the closest one? And I don't know if the, I'm assuming there's not one out further west. If we're having to go to Winston Salem, I don't know if it's a matter of we've got to open up more. Um, I don't know if it's a staffing issue or what, but that's something that uh, this next time around, having opened our eyes to how absolutely backlogged this is, uh, we, we've got to look at because uh, it's just something that personally wasn't on my radar until, unfortunately, this happened. But a year? Uh, then you've got to push that case, obviously, until you get those results back because that's evidence that's going to be presented. That is just... But it doesn't sound like a, a difficult question, to a difficult problem to solve. It's money. You just got to hire more MEs. Right. It, it, do you know off the top of your head who oversees that? Because that would be the agency that would make the request. It would part of the, it, and you know, sometimes weird things fall under departments you wouldn't think they would fall under. Uh, but in that department request, we need to make a big push for whoever the head of the department is to make that part of the request. Could you make that time. a campaign promise right now? Yes. <laughs> yes. That we will do everything we can to try to get rid of that backlog. Because really, at the end of the day, you you don't want to go to court not having all the pieces there. I mean, I know everybody wants things to move faster. But if you go and things are not done the right way on the front end, it may lead to something negative on the back end. So you want to make sure you don't want to hurry up and do these things ahead of time. So, you know, if we get that down to... Uh, to I mean, a year is ridiculous. I mean, we should have these things back in 30 days. I, 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 I guess I'm just, I'm disappointed that our government allowed it to get to this situation. I, sometimes I think that, you know, we're taking the, our eyes off the ball. We're worried about all kinds of culture wars and, and things when we should be worried about managing the, the infrastructure and the governance, the, supply, the services that the people deserve. Well, I mean, you look at the, the 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 backlog in the AG's office with the with the testing rape kits and things like that. Yeah. I mean, you're talking years of backlog. I mean, these are things that should be so much more high priority. And I know there's a lot of legal mechanisms that 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 are probably over my head, but the reality is people deserve results faster than they're getting. All right. Well, once again, we agree. Yes. There we there we so, go. And, and, and it's a money issue. Just um, and, and sometimes it comes down to. We, we we don't know the needs there unless it's requested. I mean, we, we, we've got to have these in the form of a formal request from these departments. And uh, so that that becomes coordinating with agency heads, um, their legislative ways on saying, hey, if there's this much backlog, like you got to tell you got to tell us you need the money and how you're going to spend it because uh, we, we need to know those things. when We're making a pitch in the budget room. So. All right. Well, um, this has been maybe the longest episode yet. So. Uh. <laughs> Thank you so much. You did pretty good. Uh, you can head over now and file for your uh, papers for re-election. That, that, that's it. We're headed over right now. And uh, for, any, for any bills we talk about, I always just want to remind people that we have a, it, it's a North Carolina General Assembly website. Uh, I just Google NCGA and it pops up, NCGA North Carolina, it'll pop up. And you can search the bills we're talking about. And if you don't want to read through uh, 
you know, hundreds of pages of, of legal jargon. You can go to bill summaries and our um, staff, central staff, they're not partisan, central staff in Raleigh, do a very good job of putting together bill summaries of the things we're talking about. Um, so SB 749, which is uh, the change, I know we were talking about election stuff earlier, I just use this as an example, talks about the um, uh, change in the makeup of the Board of Elections, which is in a little bit of a lawsuit right now. But we're talking about the uh, these bills. You can go in there and look at these bill summaries, and it will tell you pretty concisely what the bill actually does. Um, it kind of cuts out some of the legal jargon. So uh, that, that's always very helpful to folks. And if you can't, if you ever can't find something, please reach out to me in my office at jake.johnson at ncledge.gov. Please reach out to us. We will help you track down if you're looking for a bill, how we voted on something. All that is public information. And, you know, we just want to be as transparent as possible with people, explain if we voted on something, why we did it, what, uh, you know, what, what our county's got in the budget, uh, you know, frankly, being able to get a budget done this year was a big deal. And I believe the governor let it become law without a signature this time, um, which is a huge step from having to override. Uh, what that means is if the governor doesn't sign the budget within a certain amount of days, um, it becomes law without his signature. So uh, he let it go 10 days, budget becomes law, uh, really good tax cuts in there. I thought we did some really good, really, really good reforms uh, to the tax code, especially uh, going forward, hopefully phasing out corporate tax in the state for you know really benefiting small business owners where we're at i want to redo that whole franchise tax system next time i want to be way more involved in that um and then the income tax too getting it down and really that we want to stay competitive creating jobs with other states around us we do not want to be losing jobs to um neighboring states we've seen that in the past we do not want that to happen uh we want employers here where you're not having to commute an hour to get to work people love living here they want to live here and we want to make sure that's possible. So a lot of good things in the budget. I encourage people to go dive through it. It was really good for our area in Western North Carolina. We got a lot of really good things in there. Uh, and I'm really excited. And hopefully next time uh, we can come back and talk about the the future YMCA and uh, things that we can get pushed through there. And fortunately, it didn't quite, I, I think uh, it didn't, it, something uh, got lost in translation this time and it uh, didn't quite get funded. I don't know if it was competing with uh, maybe the rail money and some other projects, but it didn't quite get funded for Polk this time. But we're going to come back and make a huge play for it. And I believe it's about a $12 million price tag. The land's already been donated. It's, it's more like 25. Uh, we're, okay. So we're, we're going to maybe, okay, maybe 12 a year was the request, 12 a year uh, with the land already being donated. So we're, we're going to go in there and do uh, the best we can in the short session, getting some uh, preliminary money set aside, and then come back hopefully during next long session if things go well in November. Come back during next long session and make a play for whatever funding wasn't raised uh, privately. All right. Well, assuming that you make it through the primaries, uh, we will do it again. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that sounds great. Well, thank you so much, James. I appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this episode, which will be, I hope, the first of many that will help let the voters of Polk County get to know the people running for office next year. I intend to interview as many of them as possible. So if you're one of those hopefuls, let me know by emailing jameshh at polklore.com. At the very least, I think we can all agree that the 2024 campaign is going to be a lot more interesting than usual. Thanks for listening.